and together and read God's Word and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we would invite you to take one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby, and you'll find this morning's text on page 15. From start to finish, what we find in the Bible is the truth that God makes promises and God keeps promises. It's something we find out over and over and have seen over and over already in these first few chapters in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. And it's a theme that we're going to run straight into once again this morning is finally one of God's most miraculous promises come to pass in the life of Abraham and Sarah. So we're going to read this morning all of chapter 21. All 34 verses. And kids, as I do so, see if you might be able to spot a few times in the text where we're told why we can trust God. What is it about God's character? What is it about who God is that demands our faith in Him? So let me read the passage and then pray for God to bless our study of His Word. And then we will begin our study together. So here now as our God of faithfulness speaks to us once again in his word of promise. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So Sarah said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy, And because of your slave woman, whatever Sarah says to do, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of my child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from the heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water 
And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And at that time, Abimelech and Pichol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you must deal kindly with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. And when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abraham said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? Abraham said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and then Abimelech and Pichol, the commander of His army rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who indeed is faithful unto a thousand generations. You are forever true to your word, and we pray that you would be true to your word even now as we come to receive the life that it alone contains as your spirit ministers to us. Open our eyes that we might be stirred afresh in our faith and repentance. Open our hearts that we might follow you in love and obedience. Send the spirit that we might indeed Respond appropriately according to this great truth. Give me wisdom, give me courage, give me clarity as you say I must preach so that Christ might be exalted and we pray all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the more beloved tales that seems to permeate the Christmas holidays is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Story. I suppose a number of you have seen some sort of adaptation of the story, some sort of kids abridgment of the story, or maybe you've actually read Dickens' whole work. And if you don't know anything about this story, it of course is about this old codger who's really more of a curmudgeon named Ebenezer Scrooge. He's rude to everyone around him, everyone nearby him. And on the night before Christmas, he has all of these night hauntings, these visions about his cruelty and meant to shame him into joy and repentance. And so he wakes up in the morning no longer a cranky man on Christmas Day. He's happy, he's joyful, and he's laughing. And if you've ever read Dickens' original work, he begins to describe the nature of Scrooge's laugh in this way. He says, really, for a man who had been out of practice for so many years, it was a splendid laugh, a most illustrious laugh, the father of a long line of laughs. 
And you may have noticed as I read Genesis 21 that the text hinges on laughing. Did you see that? Verse 6 and 7, Sarah laughs. You may remember Isaac, the name just means laughter, or he laughs. And of course, there's great reason to laugh, isn't there? Finally, after decades of waiting, as we're going to see more in a second, the chosen child of promise has finally come. But it's almost that that joyful scene of laughter is almost immediately in this narrative interrupted by another sound of laughter if you saw it in verse 8. Isaac's half-brother Ishmael, probably about 16 years old at this time, laughing at the child of promise. And that laugh was void of any happiness, void of any joy. But for all of us today, it's a time to laugh, isn't it? As we remember that God is faithful to his promises. After 25 years, Abraham and Sarah finally have a child that God had promised to them so many years ago. And maybe as I was reading the text also, you might have thought to yourself, it's a relatively busy chapter. There's a, a lot going on in the course of 34 verses. And I do suppose that's probably true, but if you have eyes to see, there, there is a unifying theme to each of the three scenes that are present in the passage. As God is speaking to the characters, as God is ministering through these characters, it's the simple theme that God provides according to his promise. That's what you're meant to see this morning. God provides according to his promise. He does it for Abraham and Sarah. He does it for Hagar and Ishmael. He does it with Abimelech and Abraham and this covenant at Beersheba at the end of the chapter. And so I just want to walk through this chapter under three simple headings. The first of which is rejoicing in God's promise. Then as we think about Ishmael and Hagar rejecting God's promise. Then we get to Abimelech by the end, remembering God's promise. And kids, what you need to know from the outset maybe of your Christian life is that the Christian life is a promise-driven life. That if you understand the scriptures rightly, God's promises are fuel for our faith. It's energy for our endurance. It puts steadfastness and stability into our soul. And so you might be in here this morning and, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I wonder if there are any promises you are seeking to live by. And if you are, who, who's making those promises to you? Who has made those promises to you? And is such a person eternally faithful and reliable in the way that we want to see God is in this passage? Because he says that he is. So God provides according to his promise. First of all, we see it as Sarah and Abraham are rejoicing in the promise. Look at verse 1 once again. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. It's easy to miss something going on here in the original language insofar as the, the word used here for visited is not the ordinary one you might use today or you would use in that ancient context of just going over to visit a neighbor, just going over to visit a family, family member. It's a much more significant. It's a much more supernatural visitation is what this word is communicating, this supernatural divine intervention. This is the kind of visitation that's showing up here. Supernatural divine intervention that's meant to not just bring blessing but change a person's destiny. That's what's happening in verse 1. And of course, it makes all the sense in the world when you remember what's going on with the biology of Abraham and Sarah at this moment. He's 100. She's 90. We found out all the way back 
in Genesis 11 that she was barren. All the way back in Genesis 16, she says, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Biologically speaking, there's absolutely no reason to expect that she could ever have a child. But what makes impossible, theology makes possible. When God visits his people, look at verse 2, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now, students, you might want to underline that phrase, at the time, because it's actually been quite important already in our study of Genesis. God has previously spoken to Abraham on multiple occasions, saying that the child would come at a specific moment, at a specific time. So, for example, if you flip back to Genesis 17, verse 21, there God is establishing a covenant relationship with Abraham, and he says in verse 21, I will establish my covenant with you and with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. This time. The promises never procrastinate. The promises never arrive early. The promises never arrive late. They arrive precisely when God said they would. Well, if you look forward to the next chapter, chapter 18, verse 14, you know, Sarah was laughing. Really, I'm going to have a child in my old age. Ha, 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 ha. Well, God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Verse 14 continues. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. The promises arrive precisely when God decreed that they would. The promises arrive precisely when God decided they would. So you might ask yourself the question in Abraham and Sarah's life, why did they have to wait 25 years from first hearing the promise to actually enjoying the promise? Well, could it just be that God was wanting to get them to a point? God was wanting to get us to a point as an audience where all natural expectation had been eliminated so that he alone could get the glory in his sovereign grace. I wonder if any of you in here today are waiting on a promise from God. Maybe you've been waiting 25 days, 25 weeks, 25 months, perhaps even 25 years. And you're wondering, why won't he fulfill his promise? Have you considered that it might just be, it hasn't gotten to the point yet where he alone is going to get the glory? He wants to remove, he wants to eliminate, he wants to eradicate any sort of obstacles that would claim glory for themselves, any sort of natural reasons that someone could look at Sarah and Abraham and suppose, well, they just kind of got lucky in their old age. It was a happy accident. No, this is divine intervention. The Lord visited his people. So you'll see verse 3 and 4, if you just look through those verses, Abraham is shown to be once again an obedient leader in his home. He names the child Isaac. God had commanded him to do so. He circumcises Isaac on the eighth day as God commanded him to do so. And then look at Sarah's laughing character in verse 6 and 7. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. It's about 10 years ago that Emily was pregnant. It was 10 years ago. Emily was pregnant with our first child, Hudson Mark. 
And from the minute we found out that he was pregnant, or at least Emily told me that she was pregnant, I opened up a document in my computer and began to journal each day. Uh, Letters to Hudson is what it was called. And I tried every day, and I think I more or less got all the way through, but about every day I would write some sort of random note. What's going on in the life of the Stone family as we look forward to our first kid? Of course, prayers and hopes of who he would be when he grows up. And I always intended by the time he arrived that the document would be done. And so the last entry in that document I wrote in my study as he had just come home from the hospital and he was lying there, you know, in a little crib in in the study. And I just remember thinking as I kind of closed it down, hit save for the last time, just the genuine sense of happiness that overwhelmed the soul in that moment. Maybe you've experienced something before in your own life when a child has been given to you by God. But do you know that it probably just pales in comparison to Sarah in this moment? A 90-year-old woman bearing the shame of a society that meant because you are barren, that proves that you are a sinful woman that deserves no blessing. For decade after decade after decade, the shame, the scorn, the scoffing heaped up upon her, and now she is a 90-year-old with joy in her voice, laughter in her soul, says, I got a son. Who would have thought it? I have a son. Not just I have a son, I get to nurse the son too. So great is God's promise to his people. If you understand the text rightly, especially as Paul in the New Testament reflects back on it in Galatians chapter 4, it's this idea that God's promise, faith in God's promise frees the soul. Just as it freed Sarah from the shame, from the scorn that surely would have afflicted her over the decades, so sure is faith in God's promise, welcomed into God's family, partaking of his covenant grace. Does it free the soul from slavery to competition, slavery to earning a place, slavery to trying to do it on your own, that you might rest and rely upon God alone, rejoicing in his promise? But another sound of laughter comes three years later, doesn't it? It's a sound of laughter that speaks of rejecting God's promise. Look at verse 8 and 9. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a feast, a great feast, on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now, you want to understand this word for laughing, it's, it's a unique one. It actually probably is better translated mocking. It certainly speaks of laughter, but it's not happy laughter. It's not content laughter. It's not cheerful laughter. This is scoffing, joking, jesting. As best we can tell, in that ancient time, kids would have been weaned from their mother around the age of three. So for the sake of this text, we're assuming at this moment, Isaac is about three years old. His half-brother Ishmael is about 16 years old. There's a feast going on. There's a party. The older half-brother is laughing at the son, and as kids and students, you might understand, there's a way to laugh at your younger brother that appreciates him. And there's a way to laugh at the younger brother that tears him down. Now, you want to understand that latter kind of laugh is what everyone was hearing in this moment. We have no idea why even Ishmael is laughing here. Maybe it was because, of course, most basically, the child of promise has finally arrived, And he's taking all of the attention that used to belong to Ishmael. He can't stand it. He wants some of it back. Whatever it was, we know that Sarah couldn't have any of it. For look at verse 10, what she commands of Abraham. Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir 
with my son, Isaac. Now, if you scan your eyes through the next few verses, you might be astonished to see that Ishmael's name is never mentioned in the entire text. It's always the son of the slave woman. Seems to be underscoring something of the animosity, the acrimony that would exist between these two seeds. Certainly you want to understand there is anger in Sarah's voice at this moment. She doesn't even name Hagar by name in this moment. She says to Abraham, it's time for you to choose. Pick one son. And you have to pick mine. Now perhaps you've been in such a strait before. Some sort of confrontation of a, a choice. You got decision A, decision B. Or option A, option B. And you're just stuck. Maybe there's an immense care for both options. Maybe immense wisdom in both options. And you're just like, I have no idea what to do. And you think, well, if only the Lord would speak from heaven. It would be so obvious. Of course, Abraham doesn't have to worry what he should do. God speaks from heaven in the midst of his displeased disposition. Look at verse 11. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Word displeased here is normally translated into an English phrase that means to do evil. Okay, so you want to understand Abraham in this moment is incredibly hot and bothered. His wife has come and just said, you have to choose Isaac over Ishmael and get rid of Ishmael. But recognize that is his son. Through Hagar, of course, yes. But for 16 years, his son and his wife comes along and say, no more of him welcome in this tent. Don't you think that an ordinary father would say, that's hard? He's very displeased. But God says, listen to your wife. Look at verse 12. God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy, but because of, and because of your slave woman, whatever Sarah says to do, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Now, students, you want to think about those two verses for a couple reasons. There's some, there's some theological truth in there that you, you want to see clearly alluded to, if not manifest obvious. The first of which is God's sovereign choice. He says, Isaac is the child of promise, not Ishmael. Is that plain and basic? You can let Ishmael go because Isaac is the one through whom blessing will come to all the earth. Isaac at this time, of course, is what? Three years old. Has he done anything whatsoever to deserve that chosen status and identity? Of course not. It's God's sovereign prerogative to say, this is the one through whom I will bring blessing to the world, not this one. But it doesn't remove his sovereign care for Ishmael either. Because he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of him. You can let him go. He'll be taken care of. You can let him go. I will provide for him. You can let him go. It's not going to go bad. But if you look through the next few verses, it sure seems to go bad quite quickly. Early the next morning, Abraham sends off Hagar and Ishmael, a skin of water, some bread. Off they go into the wilderness of Beersheba. It seems to be as though they're on the way back to Egypt where Hagar is from. You'll notice in verse 14 near the end, she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. That word wandered actually more speaks about intoxication. It kind of paints this picture of them with this hopelessness and aimlessness. This directionless idea, we're just going somewhere. 
off on our own. Eventually the water runs out, doesn't it? In verse 15, what does the mother Hagar do? She sets the 16-year-old boy underneath a shaded bush because he's dying. He can't live for water without water for that long, of course. She doesn't want to hear him dying. She evidently still wants to be in sight because if you notice through the next few verse or the next verse, she goes off some distance, about a bow shot distance. So you want to think of her as essentially within sight of Ishmael, but out of hearing his anguish. And you might remember that Ishmael's name is God hears. So look at verse 17 and 18. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Now, if you were with us several weeks back when we looked at Genesis 16, God has already made a promise to Hagar that a great nation is going to come from Ishmael. So here's the tone with which you want to read the question of verse 17. What troubles you, Hagar? I'm going to make a great nation out of him. He's not going to die. He's not going to perish. Lift up your face. Lift up your countenance. I am going to provide for him. Take him by his hand, hold him fast, because a great nation will come from him. And of course, then, if she had received the promise in the fullness of faith, she would have understood a great nation can't come from a dead 16-year-old. I wonder if there have been times in your life when you have been kind of set aside, maybe even sitting aside, wondering in sadness, fear, doubt, and worry over God's promise. And he comes to you through his word and spirit says, what are you doing here? Did you not remember that I told you I'll never leave you? I'll never forsake you. Get up. Hold fast to the Son, Jesus Christ, in whom all my promises are yes and amen. Get going. I'm going to take care of you. I wonder if even this morning he might be speaking to some of you what are you doing here? Why are you troubled? Have you not heard my promise? Have you not received my promise? Well, of course, up they get going. God opens her eyes in verse 19. She sees a well of water. Life is supplied. Sustenance is restored. Off they go into making a great nation out of Ishmael as his mother goes into Egypt to grab a son for him. God provides for his people. And I think what you need to see in this original context, remember the original readers of this in all likelihood were the Israelites who had just been brought out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. They too are wandering in the wilderness. How would this text have encouraged them? Well, of course, they would have understood, been reminded that they are God's chosen people. The sovereign grace of God has fallen corporately on that nation. And in the same way that God provided for Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness wanderings, so was God going to provide for his people in the wilderness wanderings. God provides according to his promise for an entire nation, for Hagar and Ishmael, for Abraham and Sarah. Now as we get to this last scene, 
It's a text about remembering God's promise. My paternal grandparents, who I've mentioned a few times in here before, they're 89 and mostly in good health, so they often come up every Saturday to watch the boys play soccer and we'll have breakfast or lunch. There's nearly a weekly meeting with great-grandma and great-grandpa. And yesterday they were up again, and our two-year-old Boston, who is our youngest, is at that stage of development where he doesn't seem to have the gear that says walk. (laughs) Always running around, you know the house, tearing around the corner or doing whatever it is that little two-year-olds do in their own creative mind. And so he was tearing down the way yesterday and, and Grandpa leaned into me with all, you know, the contented joy of a great-grandfather and smirk on his face and said, here comes trouble. <laughs> and without a smirk on your face and much more concern in your soul, whenever you hear the name Abimelech in Scripture, you should think to yourself, here comes trouble. Because his name means the king is my father. It's used later on in Genesis for someone that's not this individual here in chapter 21 who we saw last week in chapter 20. So it seems to have been something of a title for the ruler in Gerar in the same way that Pharaoh is a title for whoever was ruling in Egypt. And here comes this man, Abimelech. And if you knew last week's story right, Abimelech last week was threatening the promise of seed, of of a chosen offspring to Abraham and Sarah. Abimelech was threatening it. That's why God came to him in the night vision and said, you are a dead man. You're taking something that doesn't belong to you. Well, what you want to see here at the end of chapter 21, Abimelech is again threatening God's promise. This time it's not about children, it's about land, which God also promised in the covenant to Abraham. Look at verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Pichol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. So we've used this word before. Abraham probably had a shakedom at this moment, certainly north of a thousand people within his tents between servants and this mighty army, the growing number of people that were coming into his shakedom, this vast amount of wealth, this vast array of livestock. And Abimelech looks at Abraham sojourning in his land and essentially says, I might be in trouble. God is with this man. So I need to kind of sue for peace. There needs to be this kind of non-aggression pact that we put together. So look at verse 23 and 24. Now therefore swear to me by God, Abraham, that you will not deal falsely with me or any of my family, now or in the future. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear. Now students, kids, you just want to circle the two times in that text that uses this language of swearing. It's it's talking about an oath of a covenant because it's going to show up in just a minute here when they kind of formally agree on that covenant in verse 31 and 32. And so Abraham, of course, says, yes, that's fine. I'll be kind to you. I'm not going to basically take over your land. I'm not going to come and disrupt your peace and harmony. I just want to do my own thing in your midst. But I do have this one grievance against you, Abimelech, if you notice the next few verses. I dug this well, and your servants have taken it from me. Abimelech said, I don't know anything about this well. I didn't tell anybody to do anything about this well. Did you tell him to do anything about this well? Who even knew there was a well in my land? Well, Abraham, in ancient negotiating craftiness, he takes seven lambs and gives them to Abimelech. And says, take the lambs. But of course, in so doing, you admit that I dug the well. And Abimelech says, yeah, that's great. Look at verse 31 and 32. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba. 
which means well of the oath, well of swearing. Because both of them there swore an oath, so they made a covenant at Beersheba. Here's why it's significant what's happening in this just tiny little scene. What Abraham has just claimed, what Abraham has just received, what Abraham has just gotten is something permanent in the promised land. A well for him and his family. God is providing according to his promise not just for children. And this small little glimpse, God is providing according to his promise even in the promised land. That well in that land belongs to Abraham. And so off Abimelech go, off Pekal go, and verse 34, Abraham sojourns many days in the land of the Philistines. God provides according to his promise. I wonder if you know the name George Mueller, 19th century man of faith, man of God. Parents, if you know nothing about George Mueller, it might be a good Lord's Day afternoon activity to find something out about George Mueller and talk about him to your children. He was, by the end of his life, for all intents and purposes, world-renowned for his faith that relied on God to provide everything. So he cared for thousands and thousands of orphans in Bristol, England. He said he was never going to solicit any money. He was just going to pray, 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 and God was going to provide. And this life of faith was so renowned that a pastor named George Parsons, near the end of Mueller's life, came and sat down with him, almost in a journalistic fashion, to just have an hour-long conversation with him. And there was such interest in George Mueller that George Parsons published a book titled An Hour with George Mueller, The Man to Whom God Gave Millions. And along the way in that conversation, Parsons asked Mueller, you've always found the Lord faithful to his promise, Mr. Mueller? And George Mueller replied, always. He's never failed me for nearly 70 years. Every need and connection with this work has been supplied. He has never failed me. Abraham and Sarah rising up with laughter of joy in their souls. He has never failed me. Look at that child. Look at that well. Look at Hagar and Ishmael cared for. He has never failed anyone. So maybe you're in here this morning and you don't have anyone to trust in. You do know at some point in your life you cannot have joy, contentment, happiness without trusting in somebody. And as we begin to close and meditate even further on the nature that God provides according to his promise, I want to stick our noses, if you will, in in two parts of this text to show why you can trust in God. Because he always keeps his promise. First of which, notice, trust in God's promise because of the certainty of his word. Go back to verse 1. And kids, you hear the emphasis in this way. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. In other words, why are you so surprised that a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman just had a child? I said it was going to happen. Even when it's the most miraculous instance, as he had said. So sure, stable, steadfast is the word of God. Trust in God because of the certainty of his word. Trust in God, secondly, because of the eternality of his character. Look at verse 33. After this covenant at Beersheba, Abraham planted, verse 33 says, a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And this 
construction in Hebrew is the only time you'll ever find God announced this way with this title in all the Bible. Now, students, why is Abraham planting a tree there in Beersheba? What might a, a tree symbolize to Abraham in the coming generations? Well, of course, a tree at this time was something like an altar. It was a place of perpetual remembrance. It was Abraham saying, this tree is going to outlive me. And it's going to be a memorial. It's going to be a reminder. It's going to be a sign and seal that this land belongs to my family. And the surety of that tree is found in the character of God's everlasting nature. He is the everlasting one. His promise is sure from beginning to end. Because he's Alpha and Omega. He is the everlasting king who makes promises to his people that he would do everlasting good to them. His character cannot fail, so therefore his promise cannot fail. His word cannot fail, therefore his promise cannot fail. God provides according to his promise. So I wonder what word you're trusting in for your life. Whose character you're trusting in for your life. And I do hope you see how even Genesis 21, doesn't it? Lift our gaze to the Lord Jesus Christ. For surely you know that there was a time in the future when another promised seed was born just at the precise moment. Galatians 4 says, In the fullness of time, at the precise moment, God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman. His Son, who is the Word made flesh. His Son, who is the eternal Son of God, in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. His Son, who came in the form of a man and a servant, that He might save sinful people like you and me. So you look on a bloody cross. You look on an empty tomb, and there you see the means by which God can say, Jesus Christ is the yes and amen to all of my promises. It's why later on in the New Testament, someone like Paul can say in Philippians chapter 4, my God will what? Supply every one of your needs according to what? The glory of His riches in Christ Jesus. How does God provide for you and me according to His promise? Well, He provides according to His promise in Jesus Christ, who is the yes and amen to His covenant, who is, of course, the true, ultimate, promised seed of Abraham. Do you trust in Him this promise of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do confess before you that we are prone to be impatient. We confess to you, we don't want to wait on your promise to come to pass. Renew us, we pray, in faith through your word and by the ministry of your spirit that we might be patient for your promises to come to pass in our life. Renew our trust in the certainty of your word. Renew our trust in the eternality and perfection of your character that we might rest and rely upon you alone in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.